Go belong. Hey. So uh, you ready to record the first episode of Thanks Be to Pod? Of course I am. Are you sure? <laughs> yes. This is Thanks Be to Pod. My name's Nate Dove. And I'm Colby Long. And here we are. Episode one, Deconstruction. So I think uh, that we both consider ourselves deconstructed Christians. Um, we've both had a tenuous, is that a good word, tenuous to describe? I mean, your- I had a professor in divinity school who said who would literally like shut people up if they use a word like tenuous and tell them to use real words. Um, <laughs> but but we can roll with tenuous if you'd prefer to use that. Um, I'm curious, I'll just say, what, is, what was this professor's beef with the word tenuous? <laughs> oh, it wasn't a beef with tenuous. It was a beef with academic folks uh, padding their vocabularies <laughs> to, um, to sound more verbose okay. than they might have needed to. <laughs> So, um, okay, we've had a, a checkered past <laughs> with the church. And um, uh, so we were both raised in denominations, right, uh, that may be considered evangelical or something along those lines. Um, and then uh, when we stepped away, we both stepped into mainline churches, congregations, denominations, and this process of moving from one place to another, I think, is uh, part of our narrative and part of what many people consider deconstruction. So I think there are, for us today in this episode, three questions on the table, which are, what is deconstruction? Who are these deconstructed Christians? And finally, is there a place for them? I've put together a little story for us. It goes a little something like this. Okay, so it's the 19th century, and the way that historians think about history is best summed up by the philosophy of one guy, Leopold von Ranke. The big questions for Ranke, what is the past and how do you access it? According to Ranke, the past is accessed through documents. No documents, no history. With primary sources and the right tools, however, the historian in Ranka's words can reconstruct the past as it actually happened. In other words, there is a factual, objective historical narrative that historians are capable of telling. There were some critics of Ranka in the 19th century, chief among them Nietzsche, who challenged the notion of objectivity. But Nietzsche is the minority, and Ranka and his view of objectivity are the mainstays in the academy. If you're a professional historian, you're not going to like the oversimplification of this, but just bear with me. Jump to the 20th century, and objectivism begins to erode. New kids on the block begin to argue that reconstructing the past isn't as simple as digging up some primary sources and relaying facts to readers. As Duke historian Elizabeth Clark puts it, since the past at least in written form, is preserved in the present only as text, there can be no appeal to a past aside from this linguistically constituted record. In more down-to-earth language, words aren't the past. This new willingness to challenge objectivity, to challenge the long-held views of the academy, are exemplified in the work of Jacques Derrida, who coined the term deconstruction. Thank you.
According to Derrida, deconstruction is interrogating the interplay between language and meaning. Culture often privileges certain terms over others. Nature and culture, speech and writing, mind and body, presence and absence, inside and outside, literal and metaphorical. The tension between these terms creates what Derrida calls a violent hierarchy. When a reader steps back and observes these hierarchies, questions their existence, and wonders how they may influence his or her formulation of meaning, then they are participating in deconstruction. Deconstruction, though, isn't destruction. Rather, it's the willingness to critically engage hierarchy and to humbly assume that as a person, my biases, my beliefs, my own hierarchies, they influence the way that I interpret everything. For Christians, who hold a great deal of reverence toward the Bible, you can see how a concept like deconstruction might cause some shockwaves. On the one hand, there is the philosophy of Ranka, objectivism. And if you think of the Bible as the inerrant word of God, then the text is all you need. Because you have the Bible, a primary source, you can imagine God as God actually is. But if you entertain the ideas of deconstruction of Derrida, you might realize that standing between you and God is a whole host of obstacles language, bias, culture, politics, hierarchy, interpretation, and you. Consider this. Every time you open the Bible, every time you read a verse, standing in between you and God is your perception as it has developed in the 21st century. My position as a white, heterosexual, educated male conditions my perception of the Bible and of God always. Since I can't disassociate myself with who I am, at best, I can acknowledge it and consider how dominant narratives and my own narrative have influenced my perception of God. It's this willingness to interrogate hierarchy and long-standing tradition that many of us call deconstruction. So let me get this straight. You've got, you've got, is it Ranka and objectivism? Right. That's the very simplified way too oversimplified version of this. (laughs) Right, right. So you've got those guys in one camp, or that guy. Yes. And he's arguing that a historical text can bring us objective truth on on our faith for, for the sake of what we're talking about. Right. So something like the Bible can bring us objective truth and guidance on who it is we should be, what we should believe, what happened in the past. And then you've got Derrida, correct? Did I say that right? Derrida, yeah. Derrida and deconstruction. And that is the argument that between me and those texts is my own perception. And I have to reckon with that or deal with that to understand what's actually going on in these texts. Right. It may even be more complicated than that because the process of reckoning and dealing with what's your perception and all the other perceptions that have influenced cultural interpretations of these texts, um, it's not it's not really that. Well, there's some debate about whether or not that's even possible to fully reckon with yourself. So the question with deconstructing deconstructing is possibly you're always in a process of deconstructing. You're always reckoning with yourself, knowing that in some way you influence whatever you're reading um, and how you read it. And even more than that, you're also reckoning with the perceptions of the writers and trying to figure out how 
the writers of these texts allowed their perceptions to infiltrate or be included in these divine and or historical texts. Right, that's right too. And there's also a lot of debate about whether or not the intention of the writers even matters when you're reading texts. I think there are a fair number of people, and I'm not going to put myself in one of these camps, uh, but there are a fair number of people that would say, well, you only get the text. You don't get the writer's intentions because you can't actually speak to the writer. They're dead. Um, So you are always dealing with secondhand material, and it's not so clear if the writer... If it's up to the writer to um, insert themselves within the text or if it's always the reader sort of imagining what the writer might say. I think the point of deconstructing is that you are aware that it isn't so easy to read texts. You're always dealing with all sorts of layers of interpretation, whether it's yourself or whether it's a, it's the writer or trying to figure out historical context. Right. Whereas objectivism would then steamroll its way into the conversation and say, None of that matters. It's the word of God and God ordained and it is inerrant and it doesn't matter who the writers were, what their perceptions were. None of that got in here because God controlled what's in this text. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, I mean, I would, I would say that's, that's the two camps, uh, but deconstructing isn't necessarily coming to terms or, or, or there's no process of being deconstructed. Right, you don't get to a point where you're no longer investigating all of the things that are behind or, or that are laying in front of you when you encounter text. And really, this can go beyond texts as well. Uh, deconstruction, you can deconstruct pretty much anything. The point is that you are just challenging, and you have a willingness to challenge um, longstanding thoughts about stuff. <laughs> That's so, my- Nate, are you are you telling me that to use the fr- the word deconstruction to describe me as a christian or deconstructed to describe me as a christian would be in the game of semantics problematic because i'm no i'm never done i'm never done deconstructing right it's probably problematic to say that you are a deconstructed christian you are more than likely a deconstructing Christian. Yeah. Or maybe even decomposing. <laughs> Definitely at some point decomposing. From yeah. dust to dust, baby. I think uh, Augustine said something about that. <laughs> 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 so anyway, uh, that's deconstruction in a nutshell, I think. I think we've accomplished getting from the bare word as it's been asserted and thrown around to what it means possibly in a very i don't know i think this is a very intellectual way of thinking about deconstruction it's a process in which christians uh, take apart their long-held beliefs Hmm. and i think you have a story Leave it to the liberals to create a term that you have to Google to understand. I didn't know I had been going through deconstruction until it was already happening. I was in undergrad attending a campus ministry after growing up in an evangelical, fundamentalist, Christian summer camp world. Starting as a freshman at Florida State, I arrived thinking that being an authentic Christian 
meant having a transcendent emotional experience with Jesus. I wanted that experience desperately, but never felt like anyone heard the prayers and questions I was casting out into the ether. Only a few weeks into college, I found myself regularly attending a United Methodist campus ministry. It was that campus ministry coupled alongside my newfound independence that started my subconscious shift towards progressive belief. I have a question. Yeah. Why did you feel comfortable going to the Methodist ministry on campus? I mean, like we both grew up in more evangelical environments and I would have thought I would have been scared to death because I would have thought that's where all the liberals were. Yeah, I think this is actually I thought about naming this earlier. Um, but I think I had no idea that like there was a distinct difference between the Baptist denomination and mainline traditions, right? To me, they were all some form of denomination. And I didn't know that there was such a parsing out of like a congregationalist or evangelical structure versus what was going on at the mainline. So even I mean, back in high school, I started going across the street to the Presbyterian church for a year or two because they needed a drummer in their worship band. And so I started doing that. So to me, hopping between denominations, because I didn't have the historical background of these denominations, felt very seamless. So then when I got to college and the Methodist campus ministry was across the street from my dorm and I was your standard, typical lazy college student, there were less steps to get to the Methodist campus ministry than to get to BCM or the Baptist campus ministry. So I landed Methodist with no leaning towards their theology or their doctrine whatsoever. No understanding of any of that, just showing up because it was the closest thing to me. Gumption. (laughs) Gumption. Okay. Um, Back to the story. Skipped to the end of that year, and I was signing a lease to live off campus with three other guys from that campus ministry. Two of these new roommates, brothers, both wanted to meet up for coffee before moving in. Separately, both of them told me that they were gay. They wanted to make sure I was okay and comfortable living with them. Isn't it so interesting that we live in a society where they had to be more concerned with my well-being than their own in that moment? I mean, try to see this from their perspective. You are a gay man that has not come out to many people at all. Then you make plans to room with someone that you go to church with. You don't know their background. All you know is what people think the Bible says about same-sex intercourse. But still, this moment shouldn't be about your emotional safety. This moment shouldn't be a safe holding tank for your potential trauma. Instead, you should be concerned about the faith of your future roommate. In that moment, my brain unraveled. They weren't the problem, but the faith that I had been taught Maybe it was. What kind of screwed up world was I living in where someone had to expose the deepest parts of themselves to alleviate future conflicts with me? Not necessarily equipped to have a pastoral or ethical response to such a situation, I nonchalantly dismissed their worries because to me there were none. 
I most definitely did not understand the magnitude of the moment for both of them. The fear they were experiencing that I might rebuke them after they tell me. The shame they might be feeling for not just being able to be attracted to women. The anxiety that was coursing through them while they waited for my response. All of those internal feelings, and most definitely more, did not register to me in that moment. To me, this was a simple exchange. I wanted to be roommates. They were gay. I still loved them. They were still some of my closest friends. I wanted to be even closer with them. That was the whole point of living together this whole time. Although I'm not sure I realized it then, these two men, among many other college friends, would shape my perspectives on life and faith. So fast forward to now. I just recently graduated Divinity School. I applied and went to Divinity School after lingering a few years at my undergraduate institution. While there, I realized I was not the only one struggling to rectify my faith with experiences in the ivory tower. So at Divinity School, after multiple internships and endless visits to churches in the area, I realized no one was doing the work I wanted to do. To create a community where we could earnestly and honestly question what we had been taught our whole lives without shame or guilt. And moreover, to be able to do so without feeling like I stepped through a time warp straight to the 1800s. Even more frustrating, it didn't seem like anyone cared. When I met with church officials at the denominational level as well as at the local church, there were no opportunities to work with young folks who were deconstructing. Some of these clergy and church professionals didn't even know the term deconstruction. Leave it to liberals to grab hold of a term we all have to Google in order to understand it. So job interview after job interview, nothing seemed to click with the intersection of Christian that I wanted to work with. And after finally discovering an opportunity to work with young adults in campus ministry contexts, I was rejected in favor of the candidate that had a background in fundraising. Enter the other facet to progressive church ministry. We don't have the money. For some reason, once the Bible stops being the inerrant word of God, people feel less obligated to tithe. So now, now I find myself here, discontent but full of hope, knowing that all of these emotions deserve to exist inside all of us simultaneously. Thanks be to Pod is not only a unifier for discontent, confused Christians who don't know what they believe anymore. It's a unifier and validator for all emotions we feel as well. We'll be right back. So, Colby Long, how about you tell me how people can um, support Thanks Be to Pod? All right, here's the deal. If you're excited about Thanks Be to Pod and want to play a bigger role in what's happening here, we have a couple ways for you to do that. Head on over to patreon.com slash thanks be to pod, where you'll find options for how to give back to us monetarily every month. For just $1 a month, we'll give you access to patron-only forums to discuss the episodes and whatever other conversations we spiral into. For $5 a month, you'll get patron-only forums as well as access to extended interviews with guests and special Patreon-only content. 
At $10 a month, you'll get everything listed already, plus have the opportunity to contribute to the creative process of Thanks Be to Pod by submitting questions and stories that will be featured on the podcast. And finally, at $15 a month, you will have our undying gratitude, everything already listed, and the opportunity to be a part of monthly Google Hangout sessions with Colby and Nate, where we will discuss previous episodes, burning questions, and create future episode themes and topics. Also, if you can't support us financially, we could really use your help gaining traction digitally. You can do this by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform and writing us a review on iTunes. Every review we get gains us more interest in the eyes of the iTunes algorithms and gets us important exposure to get Thanks Be to Pod off the ground. If you donate to our Patreon between now and our official launch date, or if you're willing to commit to reviewing and subscribing to Thanks Be to Pod the day we go live on iTunes, you will get early access to our first two episodes sent directly to your inbox. Hey, anything helps, and we sincerely appreciate any efforts y'all make to build this podcast into what it is already becoming. We wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for y'all. Anyways, back to the show. So I have a question for you, and it's personal. Okay. Um, Are you going to church right now? So it's kind of a tricky question. You know, I'll see if I can skirt it. I have been a pastor for the last year, and my time as a pastor ended probably roughly a month ago. And so what I can say is that I haven't been to church since I was done at my placement as a pastor. And every now and then I mull over slipping into the back of a church service now that I'm a lay person again, but I haven't put my Sunday best on and left my house yet. So I'm wondering if you're going to go through this process of finding a church. I think that maybe the question is how does a deconstructing Christian, how how do people like us find churches when they don't have no, I mean, what do you do? How do you go out and, Right. I mean, barring a couple of different indicators on the outside of churches, spaces. Wait a minute. You... Wait a minute. This is my story. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So a few days ago, I had this idea. I wanted to go out of my house and I did this thing. I went and asked my wife, Emma, to come on a little Sunday afternoon road trip with me. Alright, so my job is to write down the church names, right? Um, yes. Okay. Well, actually, yes, you write down the church names, but we're not going to say what they like. are. And we're going to put our guesses down. Yeah. Okay, first we'll go down the churches in Waynesboro. Then we'll leave, because I think that we have... Okay, so the idea was to look at the outside of a church and to guess whether or not the church would be welcoming to Christians who are deconstructing All right, so we're their faith. The church, right across the street, is the Episcopal Church, literally right across the street, almost like. Okay, so the first category of church that we um, noticed that we drove by was mainline Protestant churches. Tell me exactly what 
a mainline Protestant church is? What fits in that category? So I think that generally these are the older, more established, quote unquote, mainline. You know, they're the ones that have been around for a while uh, and that are in the blood of the United States of America. Um, so, uh, I mean, the ones that come to my head are the Presbyterian Church, Peace USA, the ELCA, the Lutheran Church, the Methodist Church, the United Methodist Church, um, the Episcopal Church. Are there any more? I mean, what, what else are? Yeah, we've got uh, American Baptist Churches, actually, which could throw things off. The United Church of Christ and Disciples of Christ, which are both pretty prominent here in Nashville, as well as Quakers. Reformed Church in America, the AME Church as well, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Most of these main main lines are known for their active approach to social issues. That's their their big indicator. Active and social issues. I could see that being a, a definition that they use. They also, I mean, at least in my mind, in my construction of the mainline church, like if I'm painting an image of a mainline church in my head. They are the ones with the pews and the steeple and the pipe organ and the robes. Is that fair? Yeah, the yeah the robes are a big thing, which always deterred me. I was like, who the hell are you people? And why can't you just be normal? Like, when are you walking down the street and you see someone in a robe? Like, that is the most unapproachable thing you could be wearing for someone who cares about social issues. I do wear a robe every Sunday. <laughs> Anyway, thanks, Colby. Nate's just one of them. Nate's just a narc. Every congregation is different, but the Presbyterian Church, you can tell by their signage, is the first Presbyterian Church. Right, but it's also PCUSA. You Uh can tell by the logo. So, I mean, knowing that it's a PCUSA church, it's a bigger, it's a... um, more progressive denomination, the church has to accept some There is things. this reality that we have to account for that there are a lot of churches that are associated with denominations, and many of these denominations set nationwide or regional policies. So, for example, the church that we drove by first was a member of the PCUSA, and by being a member of the PCUSA, you know that this church has to be open and affirming. So, signage, to a degree, is helpful. Okay, Colby, signs. They do. They do tell you something about the church that you are getting ready to attend. And I think probably one of the more helpful signs, if you are steeped in denomination, I, denominationalism, if you know anything about denominations, probably one of the more helpful signs is the sign of the denomination if it is actually on the church. So there are some pretty unique logos for the PCUSA, for the Episcopal Church. Um, does the, I think the United Methodist has a logo. Am I Cross and flame. Right. Um, so if you see that plaster. Well, let's just, uh, let's clear the air though. Okay. All United Methodist churches at this point are not open and affirming. Right. And I, that's, that's the difference um, between the United Methodist and maybe some other mainline denominations. Um, so let me just talk from my own experience uh, as a former Presbyterian um, that the Presbyterian church, the PCUSA is as nationwide affirming, uh, open and affirming uh, toward LGBTQ people. And um, so having that sign on your church, unless you left the denomination means that le- at least Theoretically, you, too, have to be open and affirming. All right, all right, here's a storefront church right here. Write down the name of this one. 
a couple of signs, no no language on the signs that would indicate like what it is. It's like in, literally in downtown, it's a sort of just a building. It doesn't you wouldn't even know it's a church if it didn't say it was a church. I'm sure in the past it hasn't been a church. There's another category of church out there that we noticed almost immediately, and that is the storefront church. So Colby, uh, you're searching for churches and you have no real clue about denominations or about um, theology or theological traditions. And you're going around, what kind of church at least are you looking for aesthetically on the outside as someone who is a millennial? What are you looking for? Right. I think this is the, the big question is, do people look for theology and doctrine when they're looking for a church. And ultimately, I would say I'm not. I am looking for something where I know the people will be relatable to me, maybe experiencing or already have experienced things in life that I am about to experience so that I have dialogue partners for how my faith informs the things that I'm going through in my day-to-day life. And so to me... Something like a storefront church would would fit that bill, would would have the people that I'm looking for. Now, that's not to say that once I get inside and start worshiping with them, that I don't get immediately concerned once someone starts speaking, right? Arguably, if you're not playing a game of semantics, you can make it through a contemporary worship service, right? With with some sort of modern worship, with drums and electric guitars. You might have a couple small red flags, but ultimately you're going to lead up to the pivotal point of when someone starts speaking and what's going to come out of their mouth. Is it going to be reflective of your faith? Is it going to be reflective of what you believe that God would want us to be and do in this world? Or is it going to be something more exclusive, something a little bit more evangelically leaning, something a little bit objectivist? Right. Um, And I would insert this, a category of church that doesn't even make it clear where they stand on many issues that concern us deconstructing Christians. I know of evangelical churches that don't even approach topics about homosexuality or anything because they are concerned about staying as broad as possible. And so they use very, very, very inclusive language, at least in that big worship service that you go to. But then when you become a member of their Bible studies and you join a small group and you go on a retreat, then then you start to get some of those things that might make you feel uncomfortable Right. And the argument is that you're trying to stay as broad as possible to be as inclusive as possible. But I really wonder if there isn't more at play. I wonder if you're staying as broad as possible because these storefront churches don't have denominational backing always, don't necessarily have denominational backing. And so then they are forced to try and welcome as many people in the doors as they can, because what lands in that offering plate not only pays the electric bills, but pays pays the salaries. Yeah, yeah, salaries. Yeah. Um. So there is no question, though. There is no doubt that there are deconstructing Christians, uh, people like Colby and myself, who are looking for more modern expressions of worship and liturgy and all of this stuff. 
And yet the churches that are offering those modern expressions of worship are at least typically more conservative evangelical churches. So those social justice issues that we care about, the things that make us who we are as deconstructing Christians, those are rejected in the vast majority of churches that are offering modern worship. And and the storefront church isn't typically attracting deconstructed Christians or deconstructing Christians. Um, so here we stand with this weird, in this weird place where progress and progressivism in respect to church means traditional. That's wild. Right. And, and your evangelical churches are creating faith that is often at people's expenses, but religious experiences, spiritual communities that you are more interested in participating in if you had the whole service on mute the whole time. Right. So that's where we stand. And I think that's kind of one of the main questions of thanks be to pod. Is it possible to create a space where deconstructing Christians who desire modern expressions of worship desire a community that doesn't look like you've stepped into a time warp actually exist. Right. Is there, is there a faith tradition or a church that is teaching spirituality that's at no one else's expense? Is there a church or a community that makes you think or realize that you're not tired of going to church anymore? Is there a spiritual, a spiritual community that you can be proud of? or a spiritual community that you don't have to be ashamed of. Okay, so uh, that, that I think brings us to the end of the very first episode of Thanks Be to Pod. Should we say it? Should I say what? Oh, the word of pod for the people of pod? Is that where we're going? Yeah. You say the first part, I'll say the second part, and then we'll say the ending together. This has been the word of pod for the people of pod. Thanks be not to sh- pod. Thanks be to pod. I'm not sure if that's going to stay. <laughs> <laughs> hey, there are many more episodes to come. Uh, stay tuned for the next couple of episodes of Thanks Be to Pod. Like we said, you can enjoy those couple of episodes early by joining our launch party on Facebook or by donating to our Patreon page. We would really appreciate your support as we get things going. This is our pilot episode. We're releasing this weeks in advance of the launch of our actual show. If you're seeing this on Facebook, social media, wherever you are, take a second, share the link. It would mean a ton to us if people saw and heard or i guess heard this can't see a podcast this episode was produced by nate dove and colby long the theme music for the episode and every episode of thanks be to pod comes from a project called lava goals that's lava goals like if you dipped a seabird into molten rock head on over to spotify and check out lava goals latest album glass negative or head on over to their Bandcamp page lavagoals.bandcamp.com. We're thankful for what they are doing in playing a role here at Thanks Be to Pod.